Welcome back to the Lantern Roo Cycling Podcast for Tour de Polonia Stage 5. Quite a unique finish. It's like how to damn. We have these world tour races, one-week races, which have different finishes, which produce very odd top 10s. Here with Benji, as always, and this show is supported by our show partner, Lecol. The course, 172 Ks, which I've just mentioned. There's a few... You know, they call them cat ones. They're really like 3Ks, 4Ks, 5 to 6%. No dramas for some of the quicker men we have here, but enough to get rid of the likes of Bauhaus and Co. And the finish, the last circuit is uh, the important one. They do three ascents of the finish line, and it's just an uphill drag, uncategorized. But fight for position and draft is important. But still, I think it's the one Benji said the other day that Carapaz like attacked a small group with Ackerman and Ewan in a couple of years ago. Yeah, certainly. The typical finish where you need a bit of a long sprint because, yeah, it, it just fall flat uphill. So it keeps going, it keeps going. But I did, like, while watching this race, feel like the finish felt easier than the previous times I imagined it because I swear I saw people just going from left to right trying to get to the finish in those sprints, but I must have been imagining it. But today we had a breakaway. We had a breakaway including uh, Marshinsky, the guy who uh, won two Velta stage in one year and then pretty much did nothing of greatness since then. And eventually he was in the breakaway with Ricard and other people. Eventually from that breakaway, Ricard was the only one left over with a good, I think it was very close to the finish line, to be honest. It was in that final circuit, continuously uh, in your spacing for the likes of Kwiatkowski because he's won here before at this finish line. So obviously they want to uh, get that Dubsky again. And they kept on pacing that and eventually caught everybody except for Ricard with about I think 5k to go and that was when we go back up towards the finish line and we start going back up and then you know Ricard is going to start having trouble and we saw some odd stuff happening in the final uh, five kilometers when it comes to crashes the first one happened with about 3k to go just after Ricard was caught we had Gidmai sitting in fourth wheel of the uh, Wanty train into Marche and it felt like he lost his balance because of a movement in the peloton basically a washing machine effect and moved into a rider and just fell over to the left. And I I think it's it's his fault, right? Kinda. Yeah, I think so. Lotto came up and squeezed him a little bit. Everyone's trying mm-hmm. to get onto Ineos train. Then it's either Ona Rubio. I don't think it was him. I think it might have is Garcia Cortina here. Anyway, there's a Movistar rider <laughs> who then comes to his left as then road furniture in the middle of the road, splitting the road in two. Girmay moves over. He's trying to lean on the Movistar rider to sort of push him off or, or create space to move up back onto his train. And there's not enough pressure there. The Movistar rider gives immediately and he just falls down and it causes a crash there. So that was unfortunate, although Intermarche still had riders to play with uh, Rota or particularly Quentin Hermans. Be yeah, a shame there on a finish that suits him, but really I think, as Benji said, he only has himself to blame. It's weird, as Benji said, like it's slow, slow, quote-unquote, uphill <laughs> drag, but it's a big group. A lot of people have been sitting on all day with Ineos taking up a lion's share of the work. We have multiple teams with actually like two and three riders to lead out. We have FDJ with multiple riders for Stewart. And it's a big group, everyone fighting for for position with a limited space. So, yeah, it got a little bit frayed and tense. And that's maybe why we saw these crashes because it wasn't wasn't because there was some mad technical reason why there there were these crashes happening. And we also saw disjointment. We saw Honoré parking himself on the Ineos train, but then the Ineos train, they had Duel, I think. They had Roe doing a turn for about 10 minutes plus, maybe more, then Duel. 
And then Duel was like, well, I can't lead out from 400 uphill, 500 uphill. And he's just looking around him. Honore's on their wheel. And then he's like, oh, oh no. And then Lotto Sudal, I think, uh, started bringing it up for old Dani, who you mentioned yesterday, Benji, and kind of swamped. Like, what did you see from Quickstep? Like, is it just Almeida out of position today? What was Honore leading out for Almeida? I didn't really, I couldn't gather clearly what their plan was. Yeah, I think positioning was the issue today. Almeida was too far back and Honore was too far at the front to be near Almeida. So they weren't working together properly. They weren't together. And that caused them to be out of position to make something out of this. Honore was, yeah, he's been like riding in third wheel, full wheel, like you mentioned the entire time. And at the end, he's at the front. Then he's like, okay, this is too early to go myself as well, just like Dul was. And in the meanwhile, we see Almeida at the back of the group and trying to get past people. But the thing about the sprint is it's going so slow that it's so bulked across the entire road. And that's when those crashes started happening. Lotto Sudal made that move that you mentioned. They came to the front with Oldani in second wheel. I think Tosh von der Sander was facing out Oldani. And that move by Lotto Sudal caused a Bora rider just in the wheel of Oldani to have to deviate to the right. And he just crashed. He just fell over into, uh, into the barrier. The barrier held this time around. Uh, and, uh, well, he was down. And at that same exact moment, like five seconds later or something, on the opposite side of the road, we have a, a Movistar rider who has to evade a back wheel. And because of that, just falls over to the left and takes like three, four riders with him. A Bahrain rider hits his head pretty hard on the on the barrier. So let's hope he uh, didn't have too many consequences of that. But the sprint was on. Lotto Sidal was leading it out and Aldani was sitting feastily in second wheel. Everyone seems to have underestimated this finish from what I could see and how difficult it was. All the top favourites jumped too early. Honore, uh, Almeida, Ulysses, even Decker, Oldani, Mohoric, not as bad as the other day where he let everyone let Almeida out. He's almost done that a couple of times. And it was on the barriers. If you go and watch this overhead watch last 500 metres you, and you're watching for the DSM rider, fifth wheel, it's like 60 meters to go he's fifth wheel he's so far back sitting in the saddle and it's the seated sprint specialist Nicky Asant you know I love him that was that Giro oh no the Vuelta seated sprinty one from a break is a personal favorite in 2019 he's won a Giro stage as well he's got five world tour level wins and he adds another today the only man who was just capable of continuing to sprint he obviously can just sprint for like 40 50 seconds is he part of the case bowl lead-out train, Benji? Because on paper, Nicky Assange's got to be like one of the best lead-out men, one would think, with his seated, smooth sprint. And that's why he can't win pure bunch sprints. But in one uphill drag like this big guy, he pips Mohoric to the line. He comes second again, taking another six bonus seconds. Aldani third, Almeida fourth, Ulysses fifth, Quinton Herman sixth, Decker seventh, Stewart eighth, Vendrame ninth. Honore 10th, Kwiatkowski, despite all that work from Ineos coming outside the top 10, which is a little bit surprising. So maybe a couple of question marks from, say, uh, Quickstep are playing with house money at the moment with two wins already and Almeida in the GC, but two guys in the top 10. And also Enkhorn and Decker, 7th and 14th, who was who was leading out who? Because someone, one of them was missing a lead out. Maybe it was a little bit too hard. But, yeah, just a... A classic weird tour of Poland finish with guy with a weird top ten as well, Benji. Like Decker in there, but also like Diego Ulysses and then climbers. Just uh, yeah, just a strange finish. 
Yeah, I said yesterday that I expected Mohoric to do well on this type of finish because this allows for a longer sprint and he will need that longer sprint today and it worked out perfectly for him. Just came short a tiny bit. And it was kind of fun because like in the last five meters, I had no clue who was winning this race. And that's always <laughs> kind of enjoyable. Even like the 20 seconds after the finish, I was like, I have no clue who won that race. And then they were like, it's aren't okay. Okay, it's aren't. And uh, yeah, Almeida once again, fourth after a bad position. That's actually pretty good. The bad position might've helped him to launch at the right time. <laughs> but then again, I think if he was closer towards the front, he would have spent less energy and he would have been better off. But then again, he could have been able to uh, launch too early then. But all in all, I think uh, Davi Decker is the one in that top 10 that surprises me the most to be here. I didn't anticipate him being able to uh, compete with these people on an uphill sprint like this. I saw him more as a guy that could get over cobbles and can sprint, but I didn't anticipate it as he can also, well, get over the hills like this. And I was expecting Pascal Inkhorn to be the man for them, but they switched that around today. And it seems like, I don't know if it was a good choice or not. I, I can't tell you. <laughs> David Decker, also known as, from his under-23 junior days, seated sprint specialist. Even at UAE, we saw that. So maybe being a seated, like in a sprint in the saddle and being able to generate power in that fashion was helpful. Uh, probably not. I mean, yeah, I'm sure if Caleb Yule was in the wheel here at the end, he, he, he could have <laughs> He'd done. be sprinting on his saddle, mate. <laughs> he, he probably would have sprinted out of the saddle. Um, yeah, what's interesting now is Morich picks up another, all those bonus seconds that I mentioned, he is two seconds behind Almeida. Uh, maybe there's a first. time trial coming he's fucked <laughs> you know you reckon it made this Bahrain that's why I wanted to bring it up it's two seconds <laughs> Almeida on paper is going to absolutely smoke him tomorrow in a 17k rolly TT from uh, Katowice to Katowice sixth stage there's another stage afterwards stage seven which is uh, looks like a bunch of sprint stage so really the GC should be decided tomorrow unless Morris picks up bonus where's Tiberi in GC he's Ooh. gone for me He's probably lost I, a lot. A I was looking at him, mate. On that crash. Yeah, probably. Let's hope he's not. Is the three-kilometer rule applied today? Uh, I'd have no clue. I can't tell you. Yeah, we're I don't. not that professional. Okay, so you're saying <laughs> nailed on Almeida True. keeps the leader's jersey tomorrow ahead of Morish. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, <laughs> I don't really see an upset. Anyone else that. here that could do well in the time trial? Like, Kwiatkowski will probably set a decent time, I expect. But a Bodnar at home so? You never know. I've, it's really right. I've been calling Bodnar for third week Grand Tour GTs like the world for a while. <laughs> for, he's not looking Joss good. Joss van Emden is going to resurrect himself. Yeah, actually, who should we go for the stage win? I'm looking looking at the start list. Almeida, like, yeah. <laughs> that's what I've got personally. He should be taking it. Uh, but, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if he can. And then there'll be th three stage wins and a fourth, if he, assuming he takes a GC, so a pretty good return for the young lad. But, yeah, that was Dragon the... Corp was at this race. I didn't is even he, know that. Is he still? Nah, he he's still like five years ago. Dinkle would wash away a finish like this. Felt yeah, the style. Uh, yeah, I heard about the Dinkle thing to DSM. Like maybe he's not. He's going there more as a mentor role. Um, maybe yes. Yeah, so maybe he took less money. I don't know because he's on a three-year deal. There, a body yeah. car to keep the riders in. Maybe yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast in itself. Talking about those Vilaflitz interviews, go and check them out. The Vilaflitz interviews with uh, DSM management, which are pretty humorous and a bit sad to be honest. Because like you see yeah. Van Wilder, twenty years old, on Instagram today. You know, he posted a tweet on oh, Instagram. Sorry, being late, he's devastated, not to be taken to the world tour. And I will say a quick word on it. You know, 
the it's one thing if you're boring next year, and Benji and I spoke about this in the in the GC transfers pod. If Bora next year say we're not taking Vlasov, Hindley, or and Co to the to the tour, we're taking Bennett and a sprint train. Not to say Vlasov's a bad rider, we think he could do well, but we just for sporting reasons need to have a sprint train around Bennett, and it just doesn't fit sporting wise. That makes there's logic behind that. Agree or disagree? It's, yeah. le- it's at least rational. That's different to being like. Like, how can you say that Van Wilder can't do the job that Martin Tuschfeld would do? Yeah, they literally <laughs> say in the interview, well, he's all right sporting-wise, but it's the cooperation part that is an issue. So either he's, yeah, either he's completely selfish, which I doubt. Like, say that then. Say, we yeah. asked you, Ilan, you're going to have to pull for Roman Bardet at this Vuelta if you want to go, which, fair yeah, again. That would be a bit of a douchebag move, wouldn't it? But then again, like, not really. Michael, why would not? be... I'd still semi-blame blame the team if that was even the case, because I'm pretty sure if you're DSM, you can find a, a way in the center to send them to a race for working and send them to other opportunities that he's happy with. Like, True, like EF. Are EF going to let Simon Carr or Kai Theta or those other riders, Camargo, have a, a crack at winning a stage at this Vuelta? Most likely. That's how EF yeah. played a TDF. The DSM got a different structure. I still think... Listen, if he said, I'm not, I'm not working for Roman Bardet at all, well, I'd say that. But just to say an ambiguous cooperation is like, what, what does that mean? That just sounds like a, the corporate buzzwords that they keep saying. Anyway, we'll go to, on to – that was our recap of Tour de Polonia and we got sidetracked onto some Van uh, Wilder DSM news. Gossip. Yeah. Well, it's not really <laughs> gossip. Like you literally put it on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> onto the ladies' tour of Norway, the – uh, it's almost a carbon copy of yesterday. The second stage again, like a rolly course, but as a as a climb with about mm, 10, 12 k's to go. Oh, less than that, eight k's to go, which we mentioned yesterday. That could take away the a lot of the energy from the domestiques who might be chasing for a bunch sprinter. Might also put Hosking under pressure or some other sprinters we have here. And I think you set it up, Benji. There was another break, another strong break with Cordon Rigaud and others, and that, that put a lot of pressure on the group chasing behind. Yes, yeah, certainly there was a, a group including Cordon Rigaud, but the most important actually action actually started with roughly 30k to go when Adriano Marcus decided to bridge over towards that front group. And knowing that that front group now has the following people in it, three riders, including Bjarnic, Cordonago, and Rihanna Marcus. Marcus, who has had strong results already in the past, and she's been a bit in the shadow of Mariana Voss, uh, performing really well, but domesticking for her in those cobble races and so forth. So she's going under the radar a bit. And with Anna Henderson being out of the team since yesterday, after that crash, they don't have that car to play, so they decided to bridge her over to the breakaway at that point, based behind the breakaway to make sure the gap is limited so she could bridge it, and she did it. She bridged over, and with those three riders, they opened the gap up again to 40 seconds, 50 seconds, and then it started going down again because we saw Volkar taking complete control behind. I think their entire train was at the front at that moment, like with 20k to go, and rider by rider, Marcus was dropping the front rider. She was going solo by then, and she kept that up for quite a while, and the problem there is like Volkar is doing all the work. And you see that when Marcus like is at the yesterday. front, the gap actually dropped back to 18 seconds when the last of the other breakaway companions was called by the peloton. And then Marcus started pacing again and sacked away from the last breakaway companion that she was with. 
and the gap opens up to 50 seconds again. Like, how can a peloton let that happen with 13 kilometers to go? Because everyone's leaning on Valka, just like kind of like yesterday. There's not. It doesn't seem to be where they each team sends one domestique. Like in the Tour, Benji, when you have say. Buani, DSM, Alperson, Quickstep all interested in the finish, they'll each send a guy up there and maybe Quickstep will have two because uh, they're the favourite for the stage. And then you, you really maintain that break a little bit more. And often a team, if you just have one team doing it and they have one sprinter, then and you're asking them if they only have a team of six already and their one rider's already been dropped, say, okay, spend four of your riders from 20Ks out. Well, they're going to be like, well, if we do all of that, we'll have no one for the lead out at all. So normally it's better to have one rider from the other teams that might be interested. I was really surprised not to see DSM. Again, putting one rider up there to maintain the gap early rather than it being a mad rush to the line, particularly with a little bit of a downhill drag as well before the finish. Um, yeah, they didn't put a rider up there again to maintain that gap. And Rihanna Marcus, different to Faulkner yesterday, Marcus stayed in very aerodynamic position. You could see her the whole time trying to stay as aero as possible. Uh, the Dutch rider, she has, actually has a YouTube channel, uh, by the really? way. Yeah, with some behind-the-scenes stuff. Some of the awesome. videos are quite good, so you can check that out. Um, but, yeah, there's nothing more to say than this was a carbon copy of yesterday. DSM started to pull for like a K and a half, eventually with 9Ks to go, then Canyon Shram for a little bit for at least Shabby, I think, and then people were like, oh, it didn't seem to be like full-out cooperation, particularly on the downhill, and Marcus is looking strong, 18 seconds at 2.7Ks, and it wasn't even as close as yesterday, although the same, Corin Rivera on an uphill drag with Marcus losing a bit of steam, sprinting, although Suzanne Anderson, DSM rider again, coming Second, uh, Alison Jackson, third, Elise Shabby, fourth, Sana Kant, fifth, Lucinda Brand, sixth, Sarah Roy, Gasparini, eighth, Favalka, Stina Borgli, and Kristen Faulkner, tenth on the same time. So she keeps the leader's jersey, I think, as it says on first cycling over Rihanna Marcus, even though Marcus might have even had a one second gap on the peloton, but maybe they didn't credit her with it. What did you think of? Uh, is there literally any difference between this yesterday, Benji? Is there a structural reason, or is it just like these things happen? Maybe Brent Van Moore on stage four of the tour wouldn't have been caught were it not for Alaphilippe doing a crazy strong pull. I think the only difference between yesterday and today is that I think Marcus was even stronger than Faulkner yesterday. And I think if the crash did not happen yesterday in the last seven kilometers, yeah, they likely would have caught Faulkner. But Marcus was focusing more on, I think you mentioned this to me most of the time, she was just more arrow and riding more arrow while Faulkner doesn't really do that too often when riding solo yesterday. So I think that helped her, but I think that she's also a, a bloody strong rider. And yeah, she's 26. She's not 22 or anything, but she is performing well. 12, that LBL, like, She's strong. If she's in the breakaway, then you got to watch out. And they didn't watch out enough, it seems. I know. I think the organization was a little bit better today, as Benji said. But, yeah, it's just interesting to see two breaks in a row. Maybe it's because there aren't teams here. Like there's no um, there's no Jolene Dor on SD Works. Maybe we're used, so used to SD Works controlling these stages so well in these races that, you know, when they're not here, we get a bit of this sort of action. Tomorrow's stage is very different to the last two, 145Ks long, and they have what looks like an 11-kilometer-long 11, 11 climb. 
it looks like the pick on Blanco Burgos stage, but just in Norway, Benji, God. it looks exactly the same. It's like a flat run in, oh, a couple of little rolls that weren't concerning one, then a big Watts per kilo test. We have the legend, Annemie van Vleuten, on the start list, so you really just can't look past her as the favourite for tomorrow. Yeah, certainly. She's the favourite for me, but I hope that Cecilia Trupp-Ludwig does well on this one as well. It's less steep than the Burgos one, if I recall correctly. So uh was Laguna Zanaya, though, right? Uh, oh, the one the women did. They did. Oh, yeah. They did night. They did Lugunas and I. I just meant. Oh, I was thinking of the pick on Blanca stage in. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, in, yeah okay. In the yeah, yeah, in yeah. a couple of days. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> they look so, the uh, same. They all look the same. They're a hockey stick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, Von Vleuten is the is the rider to look at. Moment riders surrounding her. Moment, yeah, but. Yeah, that's true. Nee Fisher Black in, in top five, probably. Somewhere over there, I, I'd expect. Anyone in other teams? Mavi Garcia, perhaps, in a, in a close position. But I think the winner is uh, decided. <laughs> is this harsh to say? I think the, the best way to play it is like SD Works, trying to get someone in a break. I remember that uh, yep. the, the women's Burgos stage that Benji mentioned, there was a strong break. Who was the – was it Katrina Avarut that did well for Movistar? on that stage in the break. Um, but yeah, get someone, SD works on those rollers, try and get someone in a break like Fisher Black, who's good enough to then actually hold it. And maybe if Van Vleuten doesn't have the teammates to control for her, which she probably does. Um, I'm afraid, yes. <laughs> and maybe she gets two minutes. I'm wishful thinking, but yeah, ABV, five, five star favorite for tomorrow's stage. But certainly one to watch. It's always good to see actual genuine mountaintop finishes, to, you know, at, uh, women's world tour level and you just see different riders who maybe don't get those opportunities to show like uh, their 20 minutes what's per kilo who you might not have heard before uh, exactly. heard of before so watch out for that but that was the recap of ladies tour of Norway stage 2 we've got the Fuelta starting tomorrow ladies tour of Norway Tour de Polonia ITT with GC very close we can't promise we'll get them all up uh, on the day but we'll work hard we'll certainly have Welter up that will work hard to have them up at least before midday the next day for the Ladies Tour and uh, Twitter Polonia on YouTube. Podcasts will all be one file. But thanks, Lacole, for supporting the show. We'll have some announcements, some exciting things to talk about for, uh, regarding Lacole during the Vuelta, for, uh, you know, which, yeah, I can't say at the moment, but I'm looking forward to speaking to you all about, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Ciao.